Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the penultimate countdown episode of this, the Rerun the Rivalry series in which myself, your let me tell you something co-host Lorcan Mullen and your other let me tell you something co-host Simon Cross pick a storied rivalry series of matches in the history of wrestling and go through each of the major chapters in that rivalry for your audio pleasures. We're now, as I said, one episode away from the finale of this series for 2003. It's Brian Danielson and Nigel McGuinness. But Simon, where are we? When are we? And what's on the line? You said 2003 there. I'm like, oh God, I wish I could have those 20 years back. In 2023. <laughs> I can edit that in there. Oh dear. Right. Where we are date-wise, or rather when we are, date-wise, is the 22nd of November 2008. We are at a venue called the Frontier Fieldhouse. No, it's not a steak restaurant. It's somewhere you can hold wrestling shows. We're at an event called Rising Above in the town, I guess, of Chicago Ridge, Illinois. Not mainstream Chicago. Of course, as you guys know by now, unless you're dropping in weirdly at the <laughs> this stage of the series, you've picked a weird starting episode. Like one of my, uh, if you could pick one New Japan matches or not. Oh, we're still a match off of that, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, of course, a match between Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson. It is for the Ring of Honor world title. Nigel is defending... People who have listened to the last episode know that Brian Danielson had to run a gauntlet, defeating all of the people that Nigel has defeated in order to get a title shot. He has done so. Here we are. Let's go. I think one of the first things I need to point out about this match that makes it different to all the ones before is that this is the first match that, at least I guess the finish of it, has been booked by someone other than Gabe Sapolsky. As you said, this one's November 2008. Well, Sapolsky was relieved of his booking duties for Ring of Honor a month earlier. So I'm assuming he booked the events. And knowing what Gabe, when he unveiled his book of secrets to kayfabe commentaries and a dvd i was hunting down it probably is somewhere in this flat but i wasn't able to find it in time to watch it before this episode and this is the first time that we have a different person in charge of ring of honor's booking at this point it's adam pierce i think over the next year or so jim Cornette starts to take more of an active responsibility within the company and that's also when some point ring of honor gets sold to sinclair media broadcasting but that's not here yet but what is interesting is that this is another step in the changing presentation of Ring of Honor. Because at this point, they have the HD net TV shows. And it's funny because they don't have the HD cameras. And Ring of Honor was the first wrestling show to be filmed in HD cameras, at least in North America. I don't know if Japan was ahead of the... They were probably filming in High Def of the Antonio Minogi billy Robinson match, the way <laughs> they were ahead of us technologically back in the day. Aye. One of the things that's notable about this match is they've got like the cranes and they've got the ambition, the larger, at least attempt to present a larger scale to the product. But the cameras are still of barely above camcorder quality when it's their own home pay-per-view productions. So <laughs> again, a funny little halfway point for Ring of Honor at this stage. It really is a um, not quite a no-man's land for them. But I did wonder if that's a factor in one of the key booking decisions within the match. But for the most part, 90% of this match almost feels like a lot of what they were doing in the Battle of the Best match in Tokyo... Mm. but with a crowd responding in an American way. 
to it and more emotionally invested. Because obviously Danielson's been building up and building up to getting this rematch since his loss at the February show, which was where Nigel McGuinness turned heel. And again, they've emphasising in the commentary, and Gabe said this is he deliberately tried to book it this way. Nigel's been growing in confidence and growing in strength and becoming more dominant in his matches as they go on. Like one of his first high-profile defences against Austin Aries, that was a really, really tight one. Yeah. Other ones with Claudio Castagnoli and Kevin Steen, he takes like the first match that they're in, it's tight, but then by the time Nigel is in the third and final or whatever point of the series it is, gets the decisive victory over them in the same way that Danielson did to him at Unified. And really, that follows through into this match again. Like with Battle of the Best, the gist of it is, and obviously a lot of that's down to the fact that it's just McGuinness is a heel, Danielson's a face. Heels absorb the majority of the offense in the match because it's about generating sympathy for your opponents. Yeah. But it really does feel like McGuinness is utterly strident in his confidence from his entrance all the way through the match. He just doesn't doubt for a second that he's going to win this match. It's funny how ultimately it's his heel turn that does that and, and the whole point of his character is that he hates the Ring of Honor fans. And I think you've said in the past it's amazing how much spite can drive a man to success. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, spite is one of the most powerful motivators in the world. And I guess that is the story of McGuinness as champion. Yeah, I do like a little bit of like the old 80s style heel work. Very early on, Nigel takes not a full powder. He just it's a, it's a casual roll out of the ring after he gets a rope break. So he's already at the ropes. He's not having to like scramble to get out of the ring. He just rolls out, takes his time. He'll engage on his terms. He's not scrabbling to prove himself. He's not a fiery baby face who's like, I must get this definitive victory. He's like, nah, I've, I've got the title. I know who I am. I'll go at my own pace. Well, the fundamental story of McGuinness, I guess it's something that we're seeing a lot in the Drew McIntyre storyline that you're getting on WWE at the moment, is that he is a heel that feels fully justified in his actions when he takes them. So, for example, early in the match, Danielson hits him with a couple of kicks, and one of them is quite high uh, on the thigh, suggesting it's low where it shouldn't be. Yeah. And McGuinness gets angry with that and complains to the ref, and then he does a what seems to be a much more deliberate version of that kick to Danielson. But obviously within McGuinness's mind, he's like, all of this is justified because he did that to me earlier in the match. Yeah. Just as similarly, so many of the things that he's saying he's doing, taking a powder to the outside, being ruthless with Danielson in his actions, are exactly what Danielson was doing to him throughout the first four or five matches in their run against each other. There's a little bit of an echo of when I can't remember the name of the match where he had the head injury and they agreed no headshots, basically. Now, obviously, he gets annoyed at Brian's perceived attack to the head, which was seemingly accidental. It was like a back suplex that was just a little high. This time around, Danielson comes in having wrestled Claudio Casagnoli the previous night with an injured knee. Well, Brian, to his credit, doesn't ask for any, like, clemency, to my knowledge. And Nigel certainly doesn't give him any. Immediately, he's like, oh, I'm going to cripple you. Well, obviously, there's more significance to a head injury over a, a leg injury, I suppose, or a limb. And Danielson, for his part, starts targeting the arms pretty early on. But this is the most consistent period of limb work that I can think that McGuinness has done, except maybe the epic encounter match where he's going after Danielson's arm. Yeah. But this is the first time, I think, in any of these matches where 
leg work is such a key part of the match. Even down to them doing some of those classic spots, even doing the Ric Flair figure four leg lock, Brian Danielson being the courageous baby face trying to turn it over, and then <laughs> when he does, it turns over again, so they're in the ropes to force the break. Spinning toe holds again. Very, yeah. Very NWA. Even more old school than yeah. that. And now that you said Adam Pearce had the book, it makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> mm. I don't know if that was because of something Adam Pearce told them to do, or again, it's just, it does seem like it's like, let's take that Funk, Briscoe, Ric Flair, Harley Race format and do an updated version of it, and that does seem to be what carries through all of these matches as we've gone on, especially the ones where the title's been on the line. Yeah. And there are just, again, some more little changes. Like, at this point, they have instituted a count-out. So there's an element of the pure title back involved now. But policy for the longest time in Ring of Honor had been, don't bother with the count-out. I think because they know that one of the big bugbears people have is when when a match is going to end in a count-out for the last ten years. You know it is because it's the one and only time the referee tries to do counting from a regular, at a regular pace and for, you know, the right time they should be doing it. So instead... The logic with Ring of Honor had always been to allow fighting on the outside until the point that it becomes excessive, so it's down to the referee's discretion to either order them into the ring or maybe even call for a disqualification or a no contest if they continue to fight on the outside. But because so much of what Ring of Honor does is defined by what goes on between the ropes and it being more mat wrestling than anything, that's never really been that much of an issue with Danielson and McGuinness, except when they use it for the pure title. Yeah. And we do get it. We get. I mean, to be fair, it wasn't a cliche, I guess, at this point. But we do get because it's a twenty count, so that does allow the referee at least a certain amount of time to count out at a regular pace and allow enough action to take place outside the ring that it's not mm. so jarring like a ten count can be. Well, with the ten count, you get the frequent nip into the ring, nip out, like roll under the bottom rope, roll away. Yeah. There's ways of doing that and being a smart, like looking like a smarmy smart ass and actually like you know generating further heat. Other times it just does does disrupt the flow. Yeah, and again, it was just something they kind of started ditching, especially around the Attitude Era, where it was all about you know Steve Austin spending half the match brawling on the outside <laughs> of the ring. Yeah, just every five seconds. I can't. I, yeah. You could you imagine? Yeah, that would be awful, wouldn't it? Austin just sprinting every ten seconds back into the ring with his knee brace as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think the most egregious example in the old school back in the day when count out finishes could even be the end of pay per views was when the Ultimate Warrior was wrestling Sergeant Slaughter at the '91 Royal Rumble, and Randy Savage gives him one of the most brutal beatings. Like, in a very short space of time, he just destroys Warrior on the outside. And obviously, Sergeant Slaughter's got to distract him for the longest time whilst he's doing that. And then it takes Ultimate Warrior, like, 90 seconds to two minutes to crawl back into the ring. And so you've just seen the ref counting him, and then Sergeant Slaughter just stopping him and stopping him and stopping him (laughs) all the time. (laughs) It's like, like, Jesus. Surely by now the ref realises, look, cumulatively... I must have done at least a 30 count at this point. I think you're fine. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> if I had a scrubby calculator, yeah, I've got enough. I've got enough in the tank. I suppose egregious in, in the sense that you're describing. Um, in terms of like ending pay-per-views and actually being like a legitimate finish, of course, you've got Lex Luger, Yokozuna. Like, and people thinking that was fine. Especially the pyro. Yeah, I've won! But not the title, Lex, you 
dum dum man. <laughs> well, the SummerSlam the year before that as well, the main event was presented to the American audience of Ultimate Warrior against Randy Savage for the title was also a countout. Hulk Hogan's win over Earthquake at some... It's all the SummerSlam's weird, leave <laughs> for some reason. He gets a bit weird, doesn't he? I'm trying to wonder, when was the last time that, like, a major company's pay-per-view ended with a count-out finish? I'm guessing TNA probably did it once, didn't they? (laughs) Knowing them. I mean, I'm sure I could find one for Match of the Week. Yeah, that's your your mission for the next year, Simon. (laughs) And don't tell me which one it is. It's just like, this is a weird choice, but okay. (laughs) But yeah, further changes as well as the 20 count. You can tell that they're doing this for a commercial audience now, or they've got more, they're more aware of their more riskier uses of licensed material, <laughs> shall we say. Because the the final countdown that Danielson comes out to in this match is not, it really is like halfway between a karaoke lift Muzak version of it. And Nigel McGuinness does not come out to Oasis like he has been for all the previous events. Yeah. The booking of this was um, more traditionalist, as I say, maybe. The, again, the, the heel and face dynamics are maybe more explicit than they ever been, most of all, in the fact, and this is one of the first signs of, like, maybe this is something that Adam Pearce has done that Sapolsky wouldn't do. This is the first and only time in their run where outside interference plays a part in the match. Yeah. yeah. Because where they do... And again, another example of maybe having to take extra precautions on a legal front when Danielson does his big dive to McGuinness to the outside, it is in onto the ramp, not within the crowd, <laughs> as it had been before. But then them being in the crowd, it seems like McGuinness had deliberately baited him. Soon after that, again, like, someone hits a dive and then they're, at, like, in trouble almost immediately afterwards. McGuinness does get the referee and distract him. And for an extended period then, Claudio Castagnoli appears in the background and just lays the boots to Danielson. And you can't quite see it. They employ picture in picture, but it's basically at the same spots. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's so you could sort of, like, see them whilst focusing on the, the fact that McGuinness is distracting them. But, yeah, it's, it speaks to the fact they didn't have those fancy HD cameras and that they would have at a televised show. I don't know if it's necessarily having their fancy HD cameras as much as it is not knowing where to put the cameras still. Mm. It's an art form. Yeah, well, I was wondering that because I did feel somewhat distance to this match more than any of the previous ones, except maybe the epic encounter in the Japan matches, but that's just because the crowd is so relatively quiet for those matches compared to every other one, including this one. Yeah. And I was also wondering if it's because of those cameras and because of the cranes and everything that it's like, it's not the Ring of Honor I knew, and that presentation is different and so it doesn't feel like it's being filmed in the same way that a McGuinness Danielson match would do it feels like it's utilizing the hard cam a lot more than it ever had done before Mm. and so they're both kind of not so large in the frame most of the time when Ring of Honor film their stuff for DVD and everything it's usually the ringside cameras looking up so they look bigger, they look more important because they're looking up from them. And I think that's also how yeah. a lot of New Japan matches are filmed. 
but going by the WWE, AEW, like, TV version of wrestling, it seems like they like to lock onto the hard cam a lot more for those shows. Yeah. And because of the size of the arena, but also the size particularly of Danielson, it seems to minimise them and their stature almost. I don't know if that's just me. Again, just these little changes are just... I don't like change! (laughs) I think there's an element I agree with you to an extent. The fact that there is this... I I don't want to say 80s again, because obviously the way I predominantly saw stuff like this was the Attitude Era. But there's a lot... There's a sports entertainment element sort of plugged into this... This match and this series, which so far to me, with very little exception, has been about like pure wrestling, who's better than the other. And I don't know who Alex Payne is from Adam. <laughs> like, And I'm watching oh, this yes. in hindsight. Who the hell is he? <laughs> I believe, and genuinely I was struggling to remember anything about him, but I believe he was a graduate of the Ring of Honor training school that they had. Right. And so these figures were really... The only person I know that went through the Ring of Honor training school that seemed to have a decent career, especially within Ring of Honor, is Rhett Titus. And, I mean, I looked it up, but he doesn't even have his own Wikipedia page. Mm. And it doesn't take a lot for a wrestler to have a Wikipedia page, in all honesty. I remember once Richard Herring interviewing Mick Foley, and this was back in, like, 2011, at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, Before Mick Foley came out, he said... He's got the biggest Wikipedia page I've ever seen for anyone I've ever interviewed. <laughs> He's got a bit of a point there. <laughs> yeah. But you're right, I mean... Alex Payne, it took a while for me to register any kind of memory of him. <laughs> the the ever-intimidating nickname was Sugarfoot. But yeah, just having him there as like... He, he really had a bit of a scrappy-do energy to him as well. But he's there, like, cheering Danielson on afterwards... For the rest of the match. Who's done that to him? Sugarfoot. That, ironically enough, is like shooting someone in the foot. Well, I was going to say the ironic thing is so many diabetics end up having a foot taken off. (laughs) Yours is better. (laughs) Do you know our uh, series of like crap wrestling gimmicks, including Jay Walker? Yeah. Okay. So I've got a lady wrestler now. Uh, I I was worried you were going to say a diabetic wrestler. Diane Beatties. Oh, don't do that. And she got two two versions of her finisher, type one and type two. She does, yes. <laughs> we are not good people. No. You know you got the Hulkamaniac, she's got the insulin crowd. Yes. Yes. See, now you're picking up what I'm throwing down. <laughs> now I'm stooping to your level. <laughs> potato potato. <laughs> This match, I don't want to be too harsh to it, but this is like, it's funny because now I've seen there seems to be like these three tiers of matches that they've got. Like the great ones, the good ones, the ones you watch for completest purposes. And this one is the closest to being either upper level, either the top of the good or the bottom of the great. And I think I will put it at the bottom of the great because I think so much of the match is like showing Danielson in the role of McGuinness and McGuinness in the role of Danielson even more than the sixth anniversary show because that was still about McGuinness finding this new part of him. Being a little weasel. Not necessarily a weasel, just giving in to this hatred. You know, the crowd are the Emperor Palpatine. (laughs) (laughs) And, as I said, this is like him fully formed, and it really is almost like a complete reversal of roles from where they were, especially in the Unified match. 
where it is the bloody Danielson willing himself back into the ring at the 19 count. It is him that ultimately is drained of energy towards the end. That great sequence. It's definitely the up there with the best finishing sequences with Unified and Driven. Yeah. Although Driven's almost like a 20, almost at times feels like a 25 minute finishing stretch. But the near falls and the comebacks and everything and, and bringing those layers of small packages and all that sort of stuff. It's weird to see like this late into their series of matches when it's supposed, in theory, it's supposed to be about they hate each other more and more over time. Or I don't know, maybe it's like McGuinness's hatred becomes defined. <laughs> so like honed. But like first with the battle of the best and then with this one, we, for the first time in their run, we get those technical roll up exchanges. Yeah. Which, I, I don't know, the problem with that is, like, it was really innovative back when it was, like, Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko doing it for the first time in the mid-90s. It's like how there's just certain things that just become cliches over time and they become almost unrecoverable because I remember, like, it was, like, a regular spot in any Tory wilson Stacy Keebler match, but that was more just because of the positioning of their legs and other parts of the lower part of their body against the other person's upper part of their body. It's not any spot. That was, like, half of their matches. Yeah. You know, but pre-Divas yeah. Revolution and all that. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's like, when it's just one, two, one, two, one, two. I It did feel just like, it was what there were so many things about their matches that are so specific and called back to, like, in this one for the first time, McGuinness gets to do the surfboard stomping on the knees of Danielson, and it's not even just to get one up on Danielson, it's because he's explicitly targeting Danielson's knees in this match. So he's going to get a bit of revenge for all the times he's done it to him, and it's going to be doubly sweet because Danielson's knees are really badly beaten up at this point. Yeah. And that Nigel is still doing that. I have till five referee. And Danielson does it this time, actually, which is, I think it's a sign that Danielson, because he hadn't done it for the most recent ones as a baby face. But I think it's almost like he knows in order to beat Nigel, he's going to have to be a bit more edgy and tough and ruthless yeah. like he was when he first won the title. Give in to his, like, the devil on his shoulder a bit more. Mm, mm. And so he does that. I have till five as well. That's why he's a great foil for Nigel in this series as Nigel's character has developed and honed because Brian is so good at not just pure heel not just pure babyface but he runs the spectrum so well not everyone can do that very few people can some people it's like when you see the Miz try and be a babyface it's just odd (laughs) but Danielson is so so good at it and he has such a body of work that Often referenced in this um, podcast universe match against Sheamus, the two out of three falls match, WrestleMania 30, and all literally all the stuff in between, his BCC stuff in AEW, at times been evil, at times been great. And that, well, that's AEW booking that it's gone from like month to month in some cases, but that's by the by. Might be giving them too much credit going by months. Yes, uh, conservative estimate there. <laughs> It's like that extra thought and just that ability. And you're seeing shades of the resilient baby-faced Daniel Bryan that we'll see in WWE that eventually gets him so over that he main events WrestleMania. Yeah. And But also then, as we'd seen before, the elements of the heel persona that was able to be in another world title match at a WrestleMania five years later and giving someone else their moments. But yeah, seeing that resilient baby-faced and fighting through it all and in... In this version, it is by bleeding. We are where we are with blood. Danielson clearly does enjoy bleeding. Well, enjoy is probably the wrong word for it. 
but he will incorporate it yeah. uh, when he sees fit and he does see fit for this one. But again, I'm, I'm always more in favour of them doing it when it's him. I mean, they do do the ring post spot here, but it's after Danielson bled before. And you can tell that there's they're a bit more protective, both of them, as mm. to where it works. And that also meant it wasn't Danielson doing that Nigel thing of just very clearly head-butting <laughs> a ring post. It was a worked spot and that made it look better. Yeah, when the way that they filmed it. I mean, the the other one is just so viscerally like impactful. But again, like I say, it's like those roll-ups within the context. It just doesn't seem to fit what I feel like they can do. I just love it when they're inventive with the stuff that we know. As I was saying before, with the surfboard spots or Nigel McGuinness setting up for his classic lariat off of the ropes, putting Danielson on the ropes, but then realizing, wait a minute. I can just have fun here and wrench at his knee yeah. because he's put him in the ropes and he's doing that. And then when the referee pulls him off because he hasn't got a five count to get there, he sees his opportunity because Danielson's so awkwardly positioned. The referee's doing the thing where he's trying to help him get out of the ropes, but that places him at exactly the right moment for him to be sitting up that Nigel McGuinness has already set up on the second rope and clobbers him with the lariat. So he's not even got that slightly awkward period of time where someone has to keep themselves in balance in order to take a move. Yeah. You know, this isn't as egregious as Alberto Del Rio hitting the stomps on the tree. Whoa! Or Alberto Del Rio as a person. Yeah, but this is the second time. I know they did something similarly inventive with how they were able to get McGuinness to hit that move, I think, in the Driven match as well. Yeah. And again, we see him doing the Tower of London from the back suplex spot. But this time it's in the middle of the ring. Like, they're not in the corner. They're on the ropes. And CM Punk was so good at that. And there were so many examples of them doing that in the John Cena match, the famous Money in the Bank match. Just those things that show there's an extra level of thought in what they're doing. But they're also still playing some of the classics. You know, the referee gets berating Danielson. Danielson turns his back on McGuinness. Danielson's got a bad knee, so what does McGuinness do? What every good wrestler does when they're in a an, an opponent's got a bad knee situation, nails him with a chop block. Ric Flair special. Mm. It's so, and I've said this a lot, but just look at the list of examples that there are. So 80s. But in a good way. Not in like a, oh, let's be like nostalgic and tribute act way. But they incorporate what they've done in previous matches into this slightly 80s lens that they put on themselves. So yeah, this whole finishing sequence is what elevates it, I think, to the great category rather than the good category. Those fantastic sequences where it's more that Danielson knows he can't really pin McGuinness. There's several points in, like, strike exchanges where McGuinness is almost, like, standing and walking through it. And so he knows that the way he's going to get McGuinness beaten is probably through a submission. And so he puts on, like, the crossface chicken wing, which is what won him the first world title, and obviously goes at the arm, going for the cattle mutilation, transitioning it into a triangle choke. And all of those ones are believable to the crowd. That is probably how he's going to get this win off of McGuinness. Also trying for a small package at one point <laughs> as well, which is what won it for him at Battle of the Best and the Epic Encounter 2 and just so many of his matches over time. Uh, yeah, the cross-arm breaker that transitions into the triangle choke, sorry, and again, because he's been working the arm, the crowd loves it and Danielson knows his way around a submission hold. It's the smoothness of the fact that it's a lariat that gives him the arm. Yeah, yeah. Um, McGuinness is also able to power out of these holds. He turns a cattle mutilation attempt into a tiger suplex at one point. Well, Danielson hits a, a tiger suplex off of it, sorry. But then McGuinness is able to turn that into a Tower of London. 
off the ropes. That's really good as well because um, I like the fact he doesn't get both feet onto the rope. It's it, it adds to the frantic nature of the sequence that we're in. It's like, right, I've just got this opportunity. I can't get it perfectly. I just have to hit it hard. So we've, we've stepped away from the technical brilliance that both men can display until, like, the visceral desperation. And it does similarly, like, driven. It does feel like it's just a, who's going to be the one to find that ultimate opening, even maybe through luck at the end of the day. And it is semi-luck because they do collide heads and you hear it. Which is upsetting. But Danielson's stuck in the middle of the ring and he's just woozy. Whereas McGuinness, because he ran into it, runs back, falls towards the ropes, allows him to hit his jawbreaker lariat. And it's as close as he's ever gotten, really, to a singles match three count fair win. But even then, it's more, more tainted than anyone else because of the halfway point. And the reason that Danielson is sapped of so much energy is through being bloodied by either McGuinness or Castagnoli at some point. I think it's implied it's Castagnoli. Yeah. Because he's not bleeding before he goes into the entranceway. And he is bleeding pretty much straight away after. But it is also, that's only at like the halfway point of the match. And McGuinness himself has had to do big kickouts, hold off of submission holds, do what he has to do. McGuinness's look on his face when good old Sugarfoot rolls Danielson back into the ring. She's like, oh, you have got to be kidding me. I do think McGuinness is naturally a better heel than a face. I just think Danielson's brilliant at both. Yeah. And to go back to my earlier point, I think that's... Danielson being who Danielson is has helped McGuinness because whilst McGuinness was in this baby phase, not never zone, but it's, it's just not as natural to him as being a heel is. Maybe it's just that it's not as freeing to McGuinness. Yeah. Or to any wrestler, like even Bret Hart said he had more fun as a heel than he ever did as a face. It's just he was a brilliant face and that also allowed him to make a lot more money of merchandise and everything. Well, yeah. So... Swings and roundabouts. But yeah, you get your fair share of lariats, and that is what wins it still in the end. And maybe that's like another slight mark against his favour, because I can't think of that many points in this match where Danielson's work on McGuinness's arm, and it is there pretty much from start to finish, affects McGuinness's arm that much. I can't recall him selling it often, whereas, you know, you look at the greatest example maybe of working an arm ever in those two Tanahashi Okada matches with the Rainmaker. Now, whilst where he's trying to neutralise Okada's Rainmaker in those 2013 matches instead of his usual going for the legs, and both times Okada does eventually win and power through, but he never stops selling the arm. Yeah. And maybe I'm misremembering it, but I don't recall lots of periods where he hits a big lariat and then is like, ah, fuck my arm. Although, in fairness, maybe Danielson was targeting the left arm, which is where most wrestlers aim and... McGuinness was hitting him with the right, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Little things. But that's probably one of the other things, along with the distancing camera work. I mean, I got, before the finishing sequence, I was thinking this is like four stars. But, and so we'll put it more in the top end of the good tier. Not the god tier. The good tier. But that whole finishing sequence, all the spots around it, the crowd as well. This is as hot as they've ever been for any of their matches. Right up there with Driven and the unified crowds. Let's start the sixth anniversary, but that was more because, again, that was more about storyline and Nigel as a heel rather than Danielson as a face, whereas this was both of them doing their roles and being of equal importance to the match. Like, they both 
got something out of this match as far as where they're going to go in the future. Danielson with his feud with Classignoli. McGuinness with that sense that he has now surpassed Danielson. And if anyone's going to take the belt from him, it's not going to be Danielson at this point. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that, I suppose, in the final episode. We will indeed. But I would personally go probably in the four and a quarter to four and a half, probably more the four and a half star region with this match. I'm around the four level. Really? Yeah, like... Nothing against anything that you've said personally. It's just, it, it was very technically proficient. It was very, again, I loved the 80s stuff and how that fit into a Ring of Honor sphere. But again, as you've alluded to, the sphere itself is changing at this point. The finishing sequence was great, but it's just for me, it was, there was something just, it was, it was, it was fine. To quote George, uh, George Bush in The Simpsons, good, not great. I disagree with that, but. What's the point of agreement at all times? But I think that's this one covered. And we are really now at the end of the final countdown, Simon, with our next match. So what is it? Where is it? When is it? And is anything at stake with this one? It is the 26th of September 2009. It is at the Manhattan Center in New York. The show, Glory by Honor 8, colon... The final countdown. And why is it called that, Simon? Uh, because it's publicly announced that it's the final time that Nigel McGuinness and Brian Danielson will face each other in Ring of Honor. They are seemingly both off to pastures new. A farewell for both men. But the fact that it's being called the final countdown maybe suggests some more things that I will bring up when I reflect on that. So that's going to be us talking about the match, but also talking about the whole run of the rivalry and everything else in between. But until then, Simon, if people want to get in touch with you with other grossly offensive gimmick ideas based on ailments that can lead to potential health problems further down the line, <laughs> how can they do so? They can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I am so known as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of syllables in Sugarfoot. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, which are A-N, which are the first two letters of Simon's newest gimmick, Anaphylactic Shock. <laughs> yes! That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox, if you're putting out gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name is Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something, and I hope you'll stay with us as we come to the end of Rerun the Rivalry. <laughs>